Section 7 of Recollections of Life in Ohio from 1813 to 1840 by William Cooper Howells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter 15 Schism Among the Methodists, The New Lights, Their Theory and Practice, Their Great Success, Washing of Blue Feet, A Curious Convert, an enemy of marriage, final concession. Our new place suited father better than the other place, as he could come home almost any evening from his business in the town, whilst it enabled him to go with the family every Sunday to meeting. Among the Methodists at that time, there was a very steady succession of meetings of one kind or another, and those who belonged to the church found abundant entertainment, if nothing else, in the continual round of preaching, class, and prayer meetings. There were then very few public entertainments, and religious meetings took the place of these for nearly all the people. A consequence of this was that meetings were carried to an extreme, and religious enthusiasm and extravagant experiences were cultivated at the expense of propriety. There was a class of people who really made a dissipation of their religion, and were never satisfied unless going through the most powerfully agitating experiences. The more thinking and less feeling of the Methodist Church came to see that it was neither orderly nor desirable to keep things at this state of high pressure all the time, and were disposed to moderate affairs and take it more calmly. They were soon denounced by the enthusiasts who chafed under what they called a prevailing coldness, and they warred upon their spirit as one of pride and worldliness. They complained that they could not enjoy religion when controlled, and insisted that their quieter brethren did not enjoy it at all. There was a number of ambitious brethren fond of leading in the various meetings, who in this way found a gratification of their spiritual pride as well as earthly vanity. They were always clamoring for authority to preach or exhort, holding that they had a spiritual call to exercise these functions, which they contended overrode all want of talent, education, or intelligence. They said if a man was called to preach or exhort, words would be put into his mouth, and he would not be wanting because he lacked worldly education, and besides they held that grammar and dictionary words were hard for the poor and ignorant to understand, and engendered pride and haughtiness. In fact, cultivated men were at a discount. The Methodist Church in Steubenville, which was the largest church there numerically, was rent and distracted with controversies between those who wanted to preach and those who did not want them to do anything of the kind. This state of things was soon scented out by some preachers in the adjoining country who were known as New Lights, but who called themselves Christians. In the way of doctrines they had little to say, though so far as I can gather they taught a kind of Unitarianism. But those fellows that came down on Steubenville about 1824 were a most unpolished and uncultivated set. 
they ranted and roared and shouted to the entire satisfaction of the most enthusiastic of the meeting-goers and as a prime article of their faith they taught that every man or woman who wanted to do so had a right to preach and was at liberty to preach though i remember that two or three of them managed to do it all themselves and they got rid of the clamorous aspirants by conceding them the privilege without ensuring them a congregation it was not long after the new lights made their appearance before they had large meetings filling such rooms as they could get to overflowing and generally raising a noise that could be heard half over the town of course they drew to them the methodists who desired to preach or at least to have shouting meetings these insisted that the new lights had the real heartfelt religion among them and went to their meetings to the scandalous thinning out of the old congregations and they did not fail to denounce their former friends as dead in the love of the world as proud and uplifted the brethren who took no interest in the new state of things were soon affected by a spirit of jealousy and they fell into the indiscretion of persecuting the new lights by denouncing the preachers as ignorant and wanting in good standing before the world they were a little shaky in this respect and particularly as teaching false doctrines the result of course was the detachment of a large body of the methodists who went directly over to the newcomers making up at once quite a respectable society as to numbers at least the methodists who were the losers in the conflict were exasperated to such a degree that they expelled the members who had left and talked violently against their rivals the new light preachers and treated them in a most unchristian manner this soon reacted in favor of the new lights and though they were admitted to be a rough set there was soon a strong sympathy with them among outsiders they rapidly increased and took in many from the class of wicked sinners whom the methodists had failed to reach among these were a lot of pretty hard boys from the woolen factory from working in the newly dyed wool these boys became colored in hands and face and especially they were at times extremely blue but the boys when they became interested in the meetings cleaned their hands and faces and became very presentable they were regular and zealous members of the new church one of the ceremonies of which was the washing of feet this ceremony was announced one evening unexpectedly and took the boys who had been working all day in the blue wool quite unawares the array of blue feet was astonishing to the elders with towels girded round their waists and no small source of amusement to the irreverent lookers-on but the boys were in earnest and endured the trial of their mortification most manfully and a trial it was for their fellow apprentices did not fail to allude to it many a day afterwards these new lights picked up and developed a number of queer cases and as they had frequent experience meetings at which everyone present had the privilege of voluntarily saying all that he could put into the shape of an experience the speeches on these occasions were often very singular 
Among the converts was a chap by the name of Dash, who, with his father, pursued the business of trading in paper and paper mill stock. This brought them into contact with every country storekeeper and every one that dealt in rags or anything in their line, and the blanks had the reputation of being incorrigible cheats, particularly the old man. The son, however, was more quiet in his manner and excited less remark. But he became a convert to the new faith and was in dead earnest, and one of the first things he did was to go round among those with whom he had dealt and open up his accounts and repay them the full amounts out of which he had previously cheated them. In a few cases, when his money ran out, he acknowledged his indebtedness. This transaction he repeated in detail at the first succeeding experience meeting, to the surprise as well as amusement of the general public. He read off the accounts from his memoranda, all of which were verified by the parties concerned. With all this he was profoundly pious, and from that time forward he bore a reputation the reverse of the old one. He was, however, very eccentric in his ways on all religious subjects. He was awfully solemn, never laughing or taking any kind of pleasure, and in everything he tried to apply the scriptural injunctions literally. He therefore very readily adopted the notion that he ought not to marry, for he said, they neither married nor were given in marriage in the kingdom of heaven. He loved a fine, booksome sister in the church, who reciprocated the sentiment, but did not adopt his notions about marriage. His proposition was that they should live together, but not be married, for that would be like the angels. They had a long time in settling this affair, and my father, in whom they both had great confidence, was consulted on both sides and advised with very often. The man was as solemn as an owl, or a dozen of them, if you please, and would argue the matter with father, who contended against it and urged every kind of reason, but without effect. So did others of his friends, as well as his sweetheart, who engaged every one she could to persuade him to act like any other man and be married. All had confidence enough in him to trust his word to live with her and to be faithful to her, and, at last, knowing that a public promise that he was going to live with her would bind him legally, they gave in to him, and he took her home to live with him, of which he made an announcement at meeting. They lived that way till they had several children, and then they were married. Several years afterward, I met with him in a pretty sound condition of mind. Chapter 16 Death of the Author's Grandfather in Wales A Small Legacy Buying Another Farm A Sad Bit of History Moving Out to the New Farm Sticking in the Mud with the Ponies Pulling Through In the summer of 1824, my grandfather Howells died rather suddenly in Wales. This made a sort of revolution in our affairs, for with his death father had expected to get a legacy of about six hundred pounds or three thousand dollars, which was a great affair at that time. This legacy had been left by a will, 
which prescribed that certain specific property was to come to father, subject to encumbrances of the estate, which encumbrances proved to be heavier than was expected, and when it was settled up, the legacy netted father only about five hundred dollars. This was a sore disappointment in many respects, for some of the other heirs received fixed sums in money free from the debts of the estate and cost of settlement, while the particular property yielded next to nothing. But whatever the sum was to be, it was a settled affair that it was to be laid out mainly in buying a farm, the farm to be in proportion to the amount in quantity and eligibility. As soon as the news of grandfather's death came, the family began to grow ambitious, and we were also treated with increased consideration by others. But we had prudence enough to make no foolish spread. So far as I remember, the serious mistake we made was in not going far enough to get land and buying it at a cheap rate and of better quality than we could obtain near Steubenville with the means we had. We heard of various places for sale, and made many journeys to look at them. These visits were mostly made by father and me together, and we had many a pleasant ride in the fall in various directions. Father made no decisions in these matters without my opinion, and, to a great extent, when I was eighteen years old, he deferred to my decisions in all matters relating to a farm. Mother was averse to going into a very new country, and for a long time we tried to find a farm such as we could manage to buy within a short distance of town, but in this we failed. At last we settled upon one in Harrison County, about twelve miles west of the county seat and thirty-seven miles from Steubenville. The place consisted of one hundred and sixty acres, or a quarter of a section, and was tolerably good land, but was very hilly, there not being one level acre on the whole. For this, Father paid $600, or $3.75 an acre. He bought the land of a moneyed man in Steubenville, who had got hold of it in a way that had a sad story connected with it. There was a large family of the name of M. in that county, Scotch-Irish people, who were characterized by the inherent love of whiskey that belongs to that compound race. They were among the first settlers and had some property. Among them was a doctor who had a large family of boys, then mostly grown up. The doctor was past the middle of life. He had the reputation of having been an able physician with an extensive practice when he first came in from Pennsylvania. When we came to know him, he had drunken himself out of practice and into poverty. His sons had grown up without trades or profession or business, and the eldest son was eminently worthless. He spent money, traded and drank, and got into scrapes, and helped to use up the doctor's means. As the old man was running down, he bought this quarter section of land, and moved on to it, and cleared it up in part and had been on it ten or twelve years. It was first entered under the old land system of annual payments, which he made, and went on getting himself a home for his old age. When the last payment was to be made, 
he gave his son the money to go to the land office and get out the patent for it. But the son had got into trouble, and to raise money he paid off the land in his own name and mortgaged it to the man of whom father bought it. The poor old doctor supposed he owned the land till he was notified by the mortgagee. He was never able to redeem the farm, though the mortgagee would have favored him, and it was finally sold to father, who bought it when he found the doctor could not and did not expect to keep it. I remember his wife one day gave mother a pitiful history of their case with many tears. Thus we succeeded a broken-down family a second time. Father bought this place in the fall, and we made ready to move out in the spring. The distance we had to move was above thirty-five miles, over very rough roads, hilly and muddy, and in some places they were scarcely passable. We set about moving in March 1825, the winter then being broken up, but the roads very far from settled. Our preparation for moving was poor. We had a wagon which was new, but not a light one, and we were still afflicted with our brace of ponies, paddy, and gin, for which the wagon alone was not a bad load. For a pioneer load we filled the wagon with a number of articles, till we found we had too much for the ponies. Then we hired a third horse, and father and I set out with him. Our plan was to make the trip out in two days, which would have made less than twenty miles a day. But by the time we got started it was past noon. We set out, hoping to make a point twelve miles off, but it was very muddy, and the hills proved to be much steeper than we anticipated. When we got to the first big hill, we found our ponies and the third horse did not work well together, except they all three balked in concert. We rested them, coaxed, whipped, and hallooed for a long time, till at last we got up in a most discouraged condition of mind. It then began to rain, which softened the mud so that it would not stick to the wheels, and we got along two or three miles further, and night came on. We then had a stretch of downhill, which indicated a corresponding ascent to make, and I well remember, as the mud seemed to get deeper every rod we went, how I dreaded that ascent. It came at last, and at once we stuck. We urged on the horses, but in vain. There we were, in the dark, the mud and the rain. So father went on to a house at the top of the hill, and got the farmer to come with two horses and help us out. At his house we stayed the night, and made a pretty good start the next day, and the horses working a little better while the weather improved, we got through on the third day, having passed through deep mud and sore tribulation. We returned without a load, and pretty easily, and forgot the trouble of the trip. About a week after, a farmer living on the place adjoining our new one, brought his wagon and team of three horses for a final move, we supposing that we could, with our team and his, take what there was to move. But this proved a mistake, and a pretty good load was left behind to come after some other time. It was a great job to get loaded up and everything packed into the wagons. 
but we were ready to start on the morning of Wednesday, I think it was, and we got through by Saturday. Take it all in all, it was a dreadful journey. The weather was changeable, and part of the time it rained, and the roads were terrible, so bad that we could hardly get up any long hill without doubling the teams. Then there was the cattle and sheep to drive. My youngest sister was only a baby then, and poor mother had to ride in the wagon with the goods. It was the best that could be done, and there was no complaint. The rest of the family very gladly walked, and it was a light task to keep up with the wagons. The man who moved us took us to his house, where we stayed to rest till Monday. Then we had an experience in the way of crowding. The cabin on the place in which Dr. Dash lived was small and dilapidated, and not where we intended to live. The neighbor who moved us had contracted to build us a house, which he had raised and covered, but it had no floor, doors, nor windows, so we had to go into the old house till it was finished. But the place the doctor was going to was full, and he could not move for several days. We had, accordingly, to go into the cabin along with his family. My recollection of this cabin, which was logs, of course, is that it was about eighteen by twenty feet square, with a sort of porch the length of it, and perhaps six feet wide, and a loft overhead in the highest part of which you could make a bed on the floor. Into this shelter the two families crowded for the time they stayed, say four days at the least. We were then nine, that is, father, mother, and the seven children. I was eighteen years old that spring, 1825, all the rest younger. Of the M's there was the doctor and his wife, two boys and a daughter, all grown up. Here were fourteen to be accommodated with shelter night and day. As I write this in a house where there would be a room for each, I do not myself see how it was managed. But that was fifty years ago, and people put up with worse things. The fact is, there was no alternative, and when it is that or nothing, we can do many odd things. Chapter 17 Method of Clearing the Land Deadening Burning Logs trees on fire, opening up a new country, hewn log farmhouses, log barns, character of the settlers, prevalence of the religious sentiment, Calvinism, no politics talked, religious controversies. As soon as the M's got away, we straightened ourselves out a little and put things in shape to live till the new house was done, which was larger and had an upper room of some capacity. Then the spring work came on, and we were kept pretty busy, for in addition to the plowing, the fences were to be repaired and the fallen trees to be cleared up, and of the latter there was plenty to do. In that part of the country where the oak, mostly white oak, prevailed, the land was all cleared by the process of deadening, that is, the small stuff was grubbed out by the roots, that too large to grub and less than a foot in diameter was cut down and burned on the spot, and the larger trees were girdled by chopping them round with an axe, cutting through the bark and sapwood, which killed them so that they put forth no leaves, or, if in leaf, withered, 
and left standing. This was an easy way to clear the land and get in a crop of almost any grain. To have cut down the trees and cleared them off the ground would have cost more labor than the new settlers could have afforded, and with their means it could not be done. After they had grubbed the bushes, chopped off the small trees and deadened the large ones and burned off the brush, they plowed and put in the crop. From that time forward there was a continual dropping from the deadened trees, first of leaves, twigs, and bark, then of the larger limbs, and lastly the trunk, which would fall in any way the wind or its weight through it. These dead trees would not all disappear from a field in less than fifteen or twenty years. Our place had been cleared about ten or twelve years, and the dead trees were just in the condition to cover the fields each winter most plentifully. The winter before we got there had brought down a great quantity, which we had to clear up before we could plow. The clearing up consisted of gathering the limbs and chunks and laying them at intervals across the fallen trunks so as to burn them off. This was easier and quicker than chopping the trunks into lengths, as by attending to them well, two or three boys could burn off more logs in a day than a man could chop in a month. The burnt-off logs were afterward rolled together and with the rubbish of other kinds burned up. The burning had to be done when the logs were dry, and it required care to keep the fire under control. If it was windy, it was liable to get into the fences or the dry leaves of the adjoining woods, on the grass or stubble of fields, and do great mischief. We went to work on our old stuff and got along pretty well, for it was hot and dry. But on a Saturday night a wind sprang up, and started the dying log heaps that were nearly burned out. On Sunday morning we were dismayed to see that the wind had spread the fire into the standing dead trees, where it was beyond our control. The dry, half-rotten bark and sap wood of the old trees was like tinder, and if a spark lodged in them it would set the tree in a blaze that would creep up to the top and along the branches, and the wind would blow it to other trees, the fences, forests, and everywhere. We might have cut them down, and we tried to do that, but we found it unavailing, and all we could do was to guard the fences and other property, which was no light task, for we had to tear the fences down and scatter the rails as the only way of saving them. We worked hard all day in the wind and smoke, and a fierce sunshine that was only tempered by the smoke. In the afternoon the fire started in the dry leaves in the woods, where it seemed to lick up the very ground. This was soon stopped by some neighbor boys, who raked a line clean in front of the fire, and left it nothing to burn. When night came on, and the wind settled with a prospect of rain, so that we felt no fear of danger, we found a compensation in the illumination we had, for every one of these dead trees stood out against the darkness like a giant candelabrum of most fantastic design, with the little tongues of flame starting from every point of the branches, looking as if it held a thousand tapers of varying size. The fields were full of them, and the scene was grandly fairy-like. 
It was a very common thing for the fire to get into the dead trees in the springtime, where it would burn for several days and nights together. The sight of a field of these burning trees was always beautiful, usually a little more so in your neighbor's field than your own. You had the advantage of the distance and the safety. The whole of this season had a charm of novelty about it. We were amongst a new people and a much newer part of the country than before. All around us they were opening up new farms, building cabins on them, and thus continuing the customs and habits of the early settlers. Out of the villages or small towns there were very few houses not built of logs. The best farmhouses were made of hewn logs, that is, logs flattened to a regular thickness. These were notched together so that they nearly touched each other in the wall. The interstices were filled with pieces of wood in a rough way, and then, for a good house, this chinking was plastered over with a good mortar of lime and sand on the inside and outside of the wall. The mortar joint between the logs, where it became dry and white, gave the house a good appearance and effectually shut out the weather. The corners of the house were trimmed down, and doors and windows cut through the logs and cased up, so as to give them quite a respectable exterior. A good house would have a shingled roof, a brick chimney, and well-laid floor above and below. A very common house floor, as well as barn floor, was made up of what was called puncheons, that is, thick slabs split out of logs, hewn on the face and edges, and cut to a level beneath. They formed a very stout and solid floor, and sometimes they were as good as boards. Our new house had this kind of floor. It was of hewn logs, but had a clapboard roof. It was clean and comfortable, and when we went into it was a great improvement on the old one, which we abandoned. This summer we also built a barn of logs, and as hickory timber was plentiful, we made it of hickory logs peeled of the bark. In this way they were very durable, looked well, and were easily hauled, which was done by the process called snaking, that is, dragged on the ground by a chain tied around one end of them. The logs were cut twenty-four feet long, so that they formed a pen of twenty-four feet square when raised. There were two pens put up twenty-four feet apart and raised on one foundation, which was twenty-four by seventy-two. They were in this way carried up to a proper height when they were connected by logs and a common roof. This made a double barn with stabling and more room at each end and a barn floor and wagon shed in the middle. Such was the universal style of barns in that country, and it was as good as could be made of logs. Many of them are yet to be seen all over that part of Ohio but they are mostly out of use. The settlers were mainly from western Pennsylvania, though many of them came in from the western part of Maryland and Virginia, and the prevailing nationality was the Scotch-Irish of the second generation. Their religious persuasion was the Presbyterian, that is, it was their ancestral faith, though the Methodists had recruited their membership almost wholly from this element of the population. There were three or four sects of Presbyterians who had divided on minor matters, 
but the larger body was then known as the General Assembly Church. They were all Calvinists, and their confession of faith was the same, and all used the longer and shorter catechisms of the Scottish Church, and the Westminster Confession of Faith was accepted by all of them. A chief point of difference was the singing of hymns and the Psalms of David. A small portion of them adhered to the old Scottish covenanters. The religious feeling pervaded the whole community intellectually, and all accepted the general orthodox standard of faith. Those who were regarded as religious had joined themselves to some of the communions. The rest were material for missionary effort of the several sects. The public mind was more largely employed with religious subjects than in later years, and it was the subject and object of nearly all public meetings to consider religion in some of its relations. Politics occupied the people much less, and they talked less about it than in after times. This, however, was before the great Jackson era, whose poison has so thoroughly permeated the practical politics of the country. I speak of a locality removed from the county seat. There, politics was always active, though now it occupies less general attention in the larger towns than in the country. The discussions at the time I speak of were nearly all religious, and there were sometimes fierce controversies that did anything but promote charity. The leading question at issue was at all times the freedom of the will and the Calvinistic doctrine of predestination. The Presbyterian sects all accepted this doctrine in its strong sense, and qualified it with no conditions. They insisted that God is all-powerful and can do as he sees fit, and as he knows all things, present and future, he, of course, determines the arrangement of everything. The free-will side of the question was taken by the Methodists and Quakers and their adherents. They usually admitted the premises of the other side, not knowing what else to do, and invariably had the logic and the conclusions against them. They maintained their position more by a conscious conviction that man has freedom of will than by any argument. These controversies were unending, of course, and nearly as fruitless as unending. End of section 7